evening. I have an explanation to make. The poster for this lecture, which I thought was terribly clever when I was doing it last week, is supposed to look like a recipe. That's why it has the funny shape that it has. But having approached 10 people in the hall this week and said, what does that look like to you? And had all sorts of answers, none of which were at all to the point. I feel that a footnote on what the poster uh, attempts to be is in order here. I was very tempted uh, to change the first line of the poster, which says Jeremy Potter, to Potted Jeremy, <laughs> since it's a recipe. But I didn't quite dare do that on such a uh, solemn occasion. The next lecture in this series is next Thursday, and that is Michael Harvey, who is a stonecutter and calligrapher and book designer, on the occasion of the centenary of the birth of Eric Gill, talking about Eric Gill and after. And he'll be talking a little bit about his own apprenticeship with Reynolds Stone, uh, who was himself an apprentice of Gill and something about the tradition of letter form in England in the 20th century and what's going on these days. Our speaker tonight is Jeremy Potter, uh, whose subject is one that's of great interest to many people here and whose title is, I think, very clever indeed, uh, New Recipes for Old Stock, The Problem of Old Books in New Libraries. Mr. Potter. Thank you very much indeed. From the vantage point of a smallish university, which only this year is celebrating its 21st birthday, it's difficult to see oneself as participating as an equal in the business of producing new knowledge in well-established fields. One can never hope to rival the large research collections because the materials are scarce and the cost absurdly prohibitive. Yet, I believe that rare books have an essential place in a new university and that the librarianship of them can be most rewarding. The purpose of this paper is principally to give an account of the work now nearing completion on a collection of only 350 volumes which were received by bequest at the University of Sussex Library in Brighton uh, on the south coast of England. I shall describe not only the processes of exploration but also reflect on the difficulties still being encountered in getting the books appreciated so that they take some part in the educational experience of students. I should explain that I've been spending so long on it uh, since 1980 because I have a full-time job as a teacher of library science and it has been undertaken while I've also been involved in other things as well. A word first about the origin of the collection. Michael Travers was born in 1909 
in the East End of London. His father was a Polish-Russian uh, tailor who spoke several languages, including some English. His mother was a peasant girl who was illiterate and never learned to speak English at all. The family had spread, fled from Russia during the pogroms, wandering through various countries until they arrived in London at the beginning of the century. The father was a fervent revolutionary who read Marx and Engels and later Lenin uh, out aloud uh, to his family. One wonders what the illiterate uh, mother made of it. It's not surprising though that Michael, uh, the clever one, uh, should have found the public library a blessing. It was a haven of peace. He was one of eleven children, only four of whom lived beyond twenty-one. So the home must have been not only crowded, but noisy and frequently grief-stricken. The public library was also his escape route. There he studied and developed a profound, profound conviction in the importance of books. Eventually, he went to the local college of the University of London, Queen Mary College in Myland, and became, at the same time, apprenticed to a pharmacist, a druggist I think you call him here. And when his father, who suffered from bronchitis, also went blind, Michael Travers decided to qualify as an optician, as well as a pharmacist. He was a most dedicated student, evidently, and qualified in 1933 as a pharmaceutical chemist, though he did not, in fact, graduate from college. One wonders how he managed to do all he did do. He was very successful in business. The necessarily ingrained thrift of his childhood meant that he never threw away a medicine bottle or a cork but he washed them, and, re and they were reused. And to the end of his days, he was likely to make notes on the back of any old piece of paper that might be around. Uh, and for a person like myself, trying to uh, find out what he thought about the books he owned, this has proved very difficult indeed with fugitive scraps uh, um, cropping up all over the place, not only in the books, but in some of his files. He did well enough in business to buy his own shop. And then selling that, he bought a bigger one. And then another one. And uh, he stocked these with cosmetics, uh, which he made up himself, and uh, a number of medicines, uh, which enabled him to uh, save uh, but produced the same sort of effect as proprietary products. He also had some good luck, like being sold a chemist shop uh, described as having three floors, uh, but there was in fact a fourth full of very scarce essential oils, uh, which during the uh, war, the uh, Second World War, were worth um, several thousand pounds. At this time, he haunted the bookshops and began to collect private press ephemera, which his shrewd eye for a bargain 
quickly had recognized as a good way of getting specimens of uh, rare work, fine work, very cheaply. He moved up markets in his home as well as his businesses and settled eventually in Kensington. And there it was easy not only to haunt bookshops uh, but with his resources he was able to spread himself more widely uh, than uh, his starting point. He bought early printed books and manuscripts. Uh, if you've not heard of Michael Travers as a manuscript collector, uh, it doesn't do justice to the number which he collected. He in fact uh, had a considerable number. Uh, they were, however, all sold anonymously. He determined to build a library to illustrate the history of ideas and the history of science. The collection which I've been cataloguing is the select portion of that library. But it wasn't, as the years went by, uh, the only subject of his efforts. Uh, indeed, uh, he might have made it a better collection if he'd not been distracted by a very short-sighted American collector who had uh, entered his uh, shop uh, for opti uh, optician's advice. With him, he discovered an entirely new world, that of uh, antiques uh, and of objets d'art. He dedicated himself to an appreciation of these things with the same passion with which he had entered uh, the book world. He frequented the Victoria and Albert Museum and became an expert in jade, Renaissance bronzes and Renaissance silver. And then in 1968 he sold up business and ret retired to Brighton, disposing of his considerable collection of 18th century furniture and most of the objets d'art as well as, by now, uh, his uh, very extensive bibliographical library. In Brighton, he found his way to the newly founded uh, University of Sussex Library and soon regretted that he'd sold his bibliographical library uh, since they hadn't got uh, what he continued to want to consult. Every university, he thought, should have some old books. Indeed, uh, he asked what sort of a university could be without any. So he determined to leave the select part of his remaining library to the university, not only for themselves, but as the nucleus of what he hoped would grow into a more substantial collection uh, through a body which he then helped to found, the Friends of the University of Sussex Library. He hoped then to provide the fledgling academic in the new university with contact with the and experience of the 
plums of the history of thought and of specimens of fine printing or just old books that very same contact for a different uh, level of learning the same contact as he had had as a teenager with books in the public library it strikes me now that this is a story uh, which could just as easily be repeated in New York the motivation the taste and the passion these are all things uh, which uh, I'm sure have driven uh, considerable number of collectors in New York and elsewhere uh, in North America so perhaps uh, giving you an account of this collection uh, is a little bit closer than Brighton when the bequest arrived at the university library there was a sigh it was said that there was no one on the staff who was able to catalogue such books and in any case uh, they would cause an awful lot of problems uh, merely looking after them the appeal was made to the British Library and they recognized the importance of the materials um, tangibly by agreeing to sponsor the cataloging and that's how I got involved for some 15 years I've been working on Renaissance printing using the British Library as my base and before, before arriving at Brighton in 1975 I'd spent three years as the librarian of the ancient foundation library uh, of the uh, Eton College uh, not the schoolboy library but that of the ancient foundation it seemed simplest to colleagues at the British Library and it certainly appealed to me if the way to catalogue these books was for me merely to walk across the road from Brighton Polytechnic uh, to Sussex University and in between times uh, turn my hand to making a record of them it had another recommendation which appealed to the British Library and that was that it would leave the experience of cataloguing materials available locally to be drawn on uh, as uh, time went by and the catalogue had been completed and perhaps even had generated queries there was too at that particular point a lot of talk about uh, the uh, development of collaboration between local institutions so I was particularly pleased to be able to lead the collaboration between the Polytechnic and the University in Brighton uh, into new dimensions the greatest appeal was to actually handle these books on my own doorstep books which otherwise I might have had to go to London for what did I find? well it was a very disparate mixture 
At least that's what it appeared when I started looking at them. That was uh, the order in which they had come out of packing cases uh, and they'd gone in according to the convenience of size uh, and actually getting them all neatly and carefully stowed. Half of the 350 books turned out to have been printed before about 1550. So very much in the period which I have the greatest experience. There were 20 incunables, but the predominant uh, number of works were published between 1500 and 1510. And of uh, all of the books printed in the first half of the 16th century, the vast majority came from presses which had become active uh, in the incunable period. Michael Travers, the shrewd eye to a bargain and to rarity, had recognized that it's easy enough to find incunabula. They're all well documented, or a lot of them are. But if you want a book printed in 1501, it's a totally different matter. So, Michael Travers specialized in these early 16th century books and he put together a collection which is rivaled, no, it, it must be said, is overtaken only to my knowledge by that of F.J. Norton, uh, the books now being in Cambridge University Library. Fortunately, amongst these, there was a very strong holding of Italian materials uh, that I at least uh, were reasonably familiar with the appropriate tools. And that would be a very good point to start. I could quite quickly produce a, a brief record, but to do so would completely miss the point of the collection. And for that matter, of Michael Travers' great achievement in selecting from the book trade, uh, running down these rare and uh, um, precious items. So I concluded that much fuller records had to be prepared. What I've tried to do is to record the material in such a way that it gives access to uh, more than the author and titles, um, though they of course are important since a large number of them are new to the library. Um, so we've got to put into at least that part of the record fuller information. I've done some analytical cataloguing. Not a great deal, but some analytical cataloguing to uh, surprise the uh, locals with the fact that texts are there uh, which they'd never even dreamt of outside London. I expanded on the short title catalogue formula because with rare works, the presence of particular elements of text may not be generally known and may not be deducible uh, from the um, published bibliographies. I've been particularly careful to note anything where the scope is not reflected in the title. 
because the history of the of ideas is the main thrust of the collection, the statement of those involved in the production of each particular document was also essential. Again, I've strayed from the minimum record which uh, catalogers usually are satisfied by. For the local community, information that a particular text was present may be good news. Um, but uh, further afield, uh, you want to know other things. As they're unexpected books in most cases, my catalogue will draw attention to landmarks. It will specify that a particular one is the first edition or second edition if it has characteristics which are uh, notably different. The real specialist will know, certainly. But reading it through, others less familiar with this kind of bibliography may get a sense of the scope of the collection and may learn something about the way in which uh, bibliography can provide information of use to scholars. The, the best Virginia mix of the Bowers formula uh, would um, not, I think, uh, for this particular um, catalogue, uh, win friends, uh, since uh, it does seem to me to be a little bit too arcane in its um, description. So I've settled for somewhere between short title catalogue and uh, um, transcript. In the imprint, I've recorded even the day of printing, if it's specified, as well as uh, printers' and publishers' names, as well as those of illustrators and engravers. So much, then, for the physical responsibility for the materials. The um, parentage of the particular texts. Since my experience of early printing mainly 16th century, I've had cause to value the collation provided in H.M. Adams' catalogue of books printed in the continent of Europe uh, from 1501 to 1600. But I've been slightly frustrated because although his collations are splendidly clear statements of the physical structure, they've not always been clear uh, enough uh, to identify uh, and distinguish between uh, reprints from the same year or even uh, new editions of the same year. Uh, so I've added to the collation an indication of the sequence of uh, preliminary material and indexes uh, within the numeration. I've completely ignored typographical errors. Uh, some of you may think this is uh, rather slack, but it doesn't seem to me that it helps to define uh, a particular edition to record every single uh, typo uh, in numbering. What I've tried to do is to pick up uh, errors which mean there's a mistake in series so that there's a, a gap in the numbers used or an overlapping sequence. This seems to me to be distinctive of an addition in a way that cannot be uh, rectified, which cannot be 
um, hidden uh, by uh, stop press corrections. To the, this particular part of my description, I've added notes on any special features with occasional comment by way of suggested explanation, uh, such as faulty distribution of copy between two presses working together or uh, whatever might have been uh, suggested. So much then for the physical aspect of the book. There are two aspects, though, which are more distinctive of the particular copies than anything else. The bindings and the provenances, both of which are included. The bindings are described as succinctly as possible, and the provenances as far as can be established. I have more to say on uh, these after a few comments, uh, a few more comments on the bibliographical descriptions. I could very easily have just sat down and produced collations uh, and recorded the books in front of me. This seems to be received dogma in uh, uh, library cataloguing these days, um, but it didn't seem to me that this would do. There are repertoires against which um, one can check and identify one's uh, items and it seems to me that we need to be able to be sure um, when you have a book in front of you uh, that it is or is not the same as what is publicly known. The books were then checked against Goff and Adams and the STCs for convenience aiming then to define the Travers books in relation to that body of known data which enabled me uh, to evaluate the particular uh, values or uh, particular structure of the um, I'm sorry, but the particular place of the Travers collection books in the structure of knowledge and of received, not, and of received uh, bibliographical uh, data As I regard Adams as the cornerstone of 16th century bibliographical description, I've not repeated collations, but merely given the reference. It's such a marvellous work uh, that uh, it doesn't seem to me to be necessary to, uh, to duplicate those records, apart from the danger of uh, introducing errors by slipshod proofreading. Once identified with Adams, seems to me that that is uh, the um, essential step. Uh, but in trying to match the Travers books against Adams, a number of questions arose. And indeed, in investigating these Travers books, a number of corrections to Adams' entries have emerged. No, I'm not just saying uh, because the Travers copy doesn't have something or does, that the uh, entry in Adams is wrong. I've actually uh, gone to the trouble to check with colleagues in Cambridge about uh, the particular copies uh, there recorded. And we've been able to um, clarify a number of items. 
just as John Callard did in cataloguing the books in the Chapter House Library in, in Windsor Castle. These corrections have been incorporated into the working copies of the catalogue in Cambridge and will be signalled in my catalogue. The entries for the index of prohibited books printed by Plantin, for example, need to be cancelled in Adams and replaced by new entries. Uncharacteristically, there seemed to have been a confusion amongst the notes. But it's not all been trouble for Cambridge. I've been able to send them photocopies of a number of leaves um, where they have imperfections. I've been stealed, stealing myself to try and match the uh, standards. But of course, where one has no control, one is uh, thrown upon one's technique. I've had resort frequently to the British Library, although I've not turned up in uh, their copy of the books unless there was uh, some element of doubt or obscurity. But uh, where my findings of comparison of any uh, interest, I've recorded these in a note too. The end, then, of the bibliographical side of the catalogue will not only be to define what there is in Cambridge, but I hope to add a little bit more to the corpus of um, descriptions of uh, 16th century and later books in a way which will define them and enable us to uh, assess what we have in other libraries and what contribution, what place particular uh, works have. Those essential relationships between texts uh, which um, are one of the most fascinating aspects of the history of culture. In a few cases detailed bibliographies exist and I've tried to match the Travers books against them. I must admit that I haven't made a systematic check try and find a bibliography of every author, uh, but uh, where the detailed descriptions in uh, Walter W. W. Gregg's bibliography of English drama uh, were available, I've uh, matched the three editions of Ben Jonson's plays and incidentally turned up a variant uh, which um, is just one of the prizes uh, for all the painstaking reading of detail. It may or may not be significant. There's also uh, produced a variant uh, which uh, uh, adds to the bibliographical record of English books in this period. Just a few days before I set off for Boston, I collated my descriptions of all STC books in the collection uh, uh, against the published text of uh, the STC and of the draft text of the second volume which is uh, in the British Library. When I get back I shall have to uh, check the details of one or two of these uh, where new variants have emerged so that we can define precisely what there is 
uh, in Brighton. In one case, though, uh, there was a question mark. And in Harvard, I was able, with the incomparable Kitsi Panzer, able to identify uh, a hitherto unrecorded STC work. It's uh, and uh, variants of three others. So, measuring the Travers books against the record of literature has added a little to the sum of knowledge. I would not have expected such a high rate uh, in every in this collection or in every, in any collection, but it wasn't totally unexpected. After all. It's nearly 20 years since uh, George Painter enunciated his law that uh, any library containing an incunable may contain a unique incunable. This, I think, can be applied equally to books of later, later centuries. To sum up, then, the process has been not just to record the book in front of me, but also to measure it against the received corpus of knowledge, the defined record of uh, the materials in the relevant periods. In so doing, I've learnt an enormous amount, and I can recommend any fledgling uh, librarian to uh, do exactly this in order to really get to know how these bibliographies work. It's all very well to know for reference purposes that they're there available, but there's nothing quite like using them and wrestling with the doubts which begin to emerge when you try to match uh, a text in front of you with a bibliographical description. I was able to carry something to the beehive. Even though uh, from the modern university, as I suggested at the beginning, it's particularly difficult to imagine oneself contributing to the uh, greater activity uh, which one thinks of as being centered on research libraries. As I say, this is really very dis much dispensable in terms of current professional dogma, and uh, if it's not actually heresy, uh, then uh, it is certainly dangerous, according to my colleagues. But only the cataloger, it seems to me, only the, the person who has some bibliographical understanding can sort these matters out. Most library users are not going to be sophisticated enough to do this. The subject specialist can't, even if the data is of crucial significance. Librarians who don't do this uh, for rare materials, it seems to me, are betraying their own users and the academic community at large. They're not mobilizing uh, their full professional skills. They're underselling themselves and in so doing, they are devaluing their status. 
those outside Brighton can reasonably expect me to alert them to the special divergent items in the collection. And the locals should equally be warned against uh, thinking that the divergent, the variant local material is uh, the standard. Basic checking, basic identification is absolutely crucial. If, uh, as it's countered, the librarian can't do it uh, because it's too time-consuming, then it seems to me we've got to teach our users to do it. But I suspect that that is very much more difficult than us doing it ourselves. To come then to the process of doing it, inevitably I used a lot of bibliographies and I had frequent resort to the British Library. My use of other major libraries in the world have suggested that the problem there is no different from in other places. And I do wish research libraries were not so coy about the work they've done in cataloguing a book. It's useful to have it with you when you're actually looking at it. But in so many libraries it's not accessible or only part of it's accessible. It may well be in a distant catalogue hall or, uh, as in the case of a library I was in a couple of days ago, uh, behind a locked door. Of course one could, could trouble the librarian to allow one to go and look at it. But of course you would not notice the, uh, the thing or you would want to go back and look at it again as you explored it further. So let's have a little bit more confidence in our bibliographical definition and let's make these records as an integral part of the use of the collection because they, that definition helps the users. These major collections constitute not only the control collections but also the resort to which others like myself have to turn to solve their problems. We don't, know, don't expect these major research libraries to be able to study these works, their holdings, in the same detail. But we at least uh, would benefit uh, from having as liberal access to the necessary tools and the necessary data that they have uh, found. If they are so unsure of their findings, perhaps they shouldn't put it in the catalogue in the first place. I said I'd come back to bindings and provenances. These, the very much more distinctive characteristics, the individuality of the copy, because these represent the intimate history, the intimate history of ideas, just as marriages and surgery represent the history of an individual person. This is the marriage and surgery uh, of texts. Now I'm no specialist in bindings, but as I would hope any uh, reasonably trained librarian uh, was able to get started. I decided to catalogue the bindings 
having looked at them all and having done most of the bibliographical work. And in the process, I began to get a lot more confidence. And then sought advice. So the drafts of the entries for the most interesting bindings have been checked by an expert who was, as I think uh, most people would find, uh, glad of a day's excuse to visit another library, uh, though uh, perhaps not everybody has the benefit of Brighton as the attraction. The provenances have proved much more intractable. They proved to be both hell and fascination. Here, the absence of any large repertoire and the paucity and the inaccessibility, as well as the almost certain inadequacy of such repertoires as exist, has been the greatest difficulty. We have been able to catalogue the STC and the wing books and so on uh, relatively easily because we've had this enumerated data accessible. There is none in this area, or at least uh, very little. Reading signatures is a very difficult task. Identifying coats of arms is no easy task. But one can do something, and uh, there's nothing like uh, pursuing provenances for testing the strength of a library and for testing one's skills in reference work. By dint of digging, I've been able to put a little bit of biography around quite a number of the names. I've also found, to my disappointment, that specialists in manuscripts don't seem to be any better at reading uh, inscriptions in books uh, than people who are specialists in books, printed books. I don't know whether anybody could explain that particular paradox. So here we have these uh, splendid books. No, I didn't, didn't actually say very much about them, did I? Let me just uh, name a few names, just to give you a flavour. Big names, jostling with each other. Editions of Erasmus and Hobbes, and Darwin. Fine printing from presses like Aldous in Venice, Froben in Basle, Plantin in Antwerp. Books illustrated by Holbein, Hogarth, Cruikshank, all documenting, presenting the landmarks in the development of a modern book. Just 350 volumes. And although he didn't collect books for their bindings, as he only really was interested in good copies, quite a lot of them are in good bindings. They're a very covetable range of books, showing great taste and sound judgment. And it uh, is really quite extraordinary to think of the amount of energy which he must have put in at the end or perhaps the beginning of a very hard working day uh, dispensing medicines and prescribing spectacles. This then 
arrived in a new university which has no pretensions to being uh, a library of old books, no pretensions of having prime source material uh, for historical studies in this area. It's of course nice to have them, and it's been fun for me to build up an intimate acquaintance with them. There, um, there was a definite value in doing it in dribs and drabs, because in that way I've been able to uh, remember them and absorb them rather more. Yet, the problem of getting them out of the strong room and into the proper use was still to be solved. The community is too busy uh, at first sight uh, in its round of educational activities to have time uh, for such things. Some of the library staff uh, resent their presence. Perhaps they resent them as representative of a culture they've rejected or feel uneasy about. I don't know. Oh no, uh, they won't go into the computer catalogue for a long time. That's for useful books, was what uh, one uh, person said to me there. Uh, I must admit I was rather baiting him. But there are display cases and uh, a need to fill them. So there's always some chance of capturing an eye and an imagination. To give you something of the picture, let me explain that the University of Sussex is one of the dozen or so new universities set up in Britain in the enthusiastic expansion of higher education which also took place here in the late 50s, 60s and early 70s. From the beginning, the library was favoured in funding uh, in the university as a whole and it's now approaching half a million volumes. Uh, rather a small number, I guess, in relation to uh, the majority of libraries in New England uh, which uh, have the same sort of status as the University of Sussex. It's still not enough uh, for many types of research, particularly in the humanities, as I found in Chasing Provenances. Uh, but uh, I was looking forward to uh, continuing to expand uh, to uh, a million or so when one would be able to stretch one's legs and breathe and uh, browse amongst stacks and find answers, as one does in the humanities, only by direct uh, contact with the materials. It is not to be. Just as I was uh, dreaming of that as a prospect, the economy began to chill and the treasury gnomes uh, began to uh, look to ways of decreasing money spent in universities. They embraced a new doctrine, the steady state. In the future, uh, libraries must plan and expect to not to grow. So they must expect to throw away uh, some of the stuff to make room for the new stuff. Steady state, just as space and staff problems were about to go critical. Uh, one can understand the disillusionment uh, of the staff 
as they uh, exploded, well, imploded, I suppose, was more like the seizing which one recognised behind the, the gritted teeth. The faculty uh, would not admit what I'm now going to say, and indeed I would prefer not to be quoted on it. With the pressure of budgets within the university, repeated attacks have been made on the library uh, in, uh, as I think, a betrayal of the fundamental rationale of the university courses there and the academic structure of the institution. A special feature of these has long been very high library use per student and the assignment of individual exploration topics uh, for uh, learning as part of the learning strategy. Topics which depend on both stock and staff help to be effective uh, in above average degree. Faculty have refused to face the need for systematic decisions about the subject structure of the university which would enable the library to make uh, coherent retrenchment and make better use of its resources. Sadly, the faculty uh, won't accept that if you have capital, you have to surface, service it or it become a greater liability. So, the internal politics don't allow much peace and lead to looking back over shoulders uh, in case one can catch the glint of uh, knives. To approach faculty then with new ideas is not uh, likely to be very successful. They, after all, are clinging uh, to what they value uh, as they fear that it, it will be dragged away from them. They don't want the librarian telling them how to do their job. So the library is in rather a cleft stick. It has this splendid collection of books, uh, but it has uh, faculty who are temperamentally, not at the moment, ready to take it on board, even if able. And the librarian has to maintain credibility with scholars. In a sense, uh, it seems to me we have got an answer if we decide uh, that the library has an independent existence. It isn't merely the servant of faculty. In appealing beyond the academic to the student directly, I think we can perhaps see uh, the way in which to ultimately change the atmosphere of the university. After all, the students have direct contact with the library, and not only as uh, demanded by the course. They use it for a wide range of other purposes. So what are my recipes? First, the unplanned, imaginative conjunction of materials. Unplanned not by the librarian, but unplanned as far as the academic uh, disciplines are concerned. Cross-disciplinary work. 
It doesn't matter if it isn't on the syllabus, I don't think. What matters is that it might capture the imagination. Let's not be afraid of doing that. Because unless we are prepared to do that, we're not going to give our students room to develop their own confidence uh, and their own responses. If the library is a place where exciting things happen, uh, then uh, the excitement may communicate itself to the routine of the academic study. But it may uh, persist beyond the academic study uh, and win friends for libraries in general. It may win friends uh, for books. We can't take that for granted, I don't think, these days. The other thing which I would suggest we can usefully capitalize on is that although in new universities we are nonetheless at the end of a long tradition. Not, one hopes, at its death, but at a point uh, where there is a long history. It's one which we can join just as one might get on an escalator. The personal histories of the texts of these individual volumes give us uh, an insight into the way in which, although it's a new university, it is nonetheless uh, a participant, a continuator of a long um, cultivation of learning. Here's a traveller, far from home, writing his name rather excitedly, one suspects, and proudly, a bit reverently even as he spreads himself in a new book which he's just bought. It was quite a struggle to carry it away from the bookshop, too. He knows the text already, of course. Uh, he's, he's been studying it ever since he was um, in his early teens. But now, in this new copy, crisp, and with a new commentary, he'll be able to pension off uh, and pass on the thumbed copy he left back home. It's good to have this author with this uh, exciting new commentary. It's a book to keep and cherish for the rest of one's life. Uh, I can imagine that he kept uh, returning uh, his gaze to the shelf, uh, looking uh, where he put it, mixing the pleasure of familiarity for the text uh, with uh, his delight in the ownership of this uh, sparkling new edition. Conrad Lemberger of Mulbrun was a long way from home when he signed uh, his name in Latin in a book just 500 years ago. If you put another book from the Travers collection next to it, it becomes even more suggestive. This is an edition of St. Ambrose printed in Baal in 1506 some 20 years later. It's bulky, running to three fat volumes, though not quite as large uh, as the classic text we've just mentioned. There would have been an enormous amount of proofreading. So one can imagine the pride of the editor 
uh, hoisting uh, his edition onto the shelf of his own books. It would have gone next to uh, the Virgil because this edition of St. Ambrose was edited by none other than Conrad Lemberger. In this juxtaposition, we see, I think, the richness of the culture. These two texts, St. Ambrose, the Christian uh, father, and Virgil, the Christianized uh, but uh, characteristically Renaissance figure, um, we see them uh, bridging the cultures coming together, clashing, one might say, uh, in, uh, in a world 500 years old. The two texts from these different epochs coming together uh, just as the 500-year-old books now uh, are on the shelves uh, with books printed last year. The classical poet nourishing the Latinity of the editor. This is surely the best way of dispelling for a student the impersonality of the electronic age. It must surely bring the student up against the individual in history. It must surely touch the heart and the imagination in a way uh, that is arguably the only real education. He also saw through the press the rules of the monastery uh, which he was attached to. He was the secretary of the, uh, the abbot of uh, the Cistercian Monastery at Cite, uh, the head house of the order. He uh, failed, however, to sign at least one copy of that edition, although uh, it says in the introduction uh, that uh, every copy was to be confirmed uh, by his signature. That's the copy in the Bodleian Library. I should be interested to know uh, whether other copies uh, have, his, uh, have his signature or not. The one in the Fairfax Murray uh, Library certainly did. These books now in Sussex University Library represent the recycling of material which gives the library uh, a history one which the individual may join in uh, by enthusiastic collection, one which enables the individual to contribute to. I'm sure that if librarians are able to get over to students that uh, they can just as easily put together a significant collection as anybody else in the subject, then uh, I'm sure uh, they would not be so intimidated by uh, the learning which they have to do. The continuity is illustrated by another work, Pliny's Natural History. It's in the Travers collection in three copies. The earliest was printed again in Venice in 1507 and it belonged to Peter Falk, for whom it was bound in pigskin with his arms. He was a Swiss diplomat who spent some time in Italy and went to the Holy Land, not once, but twice. 
Another copy of the same edition contains a sequence of signatures, the second of which is of John Freak, who was the last prior of Montacute in Somerset, um, which was disestablished in 1535. It later got into Rochester Cathedral Library and out again. Here's a document then, two copies, showing the way in which the culture of Renaissance scholars, the endeavours of Renaissance editors and printers, penetrated deeply into Europe. The other edition in the collection reinforces this. It's bound in leather on beech wood boards and contains the signature of Joannes Kinkinus, John Curly Hair, who was the librarian of the Benedictine Monastery of Verdun in Germany in this period, at the beginning of the 16th century. He wrote in a rather splendid red ink and decorated the title page uh, with alternate uh, green and yellow stripes. It, is, it really is a most extraordinary sight. I believe uh, there are more of his books in the New University of Münster uh, in West Germany. And so here is an unexpected link between two modern communities of scholars par participating in this continuing tradition of uh, scholarship, of love of the classics, and of inspiration uh, from early texts. Later stages in library history uh, can be represented uh, by other books, uh, without which uh, the books in the library wouldn't have survived at all. The first English edition of the Decameron, uh, an early 17th century volume in folio, belonged to Richard Heber, who was half-brother of uh, an almost equally bibliophile bishop. It took several years for the books of uh, Richard Heber to go through the sale rooms, since he had about 150,000 in all, uh, and his library, uh, libraries I should say, uh, since uh, they were Harry Richardson Curra who in 1835 published extracts from the literary and scientific correspondence of her ancestor Richard Richardson. This is a characteristically restrained yet sumptuous binding which makes it easy to recognize her as a woman of distinction. She devoted her energies single-mindedly to building up Richardson's library which had descended to her. So successfully did she do this that she must be regarded as uh, one of the most outstanding female bibliophiles so far. It's said that only one offer of matrimony detained her serious attention, and that was from Richard Heber. Perhaps it was love of books which kept them apart. Uh, so there is, I think you'll agree, a frisson in, in the irony of fortune, which allows bibliophily to unite them on the shelves of a modern university library. But through these books, in the collection, the student in Sussex can see uh, tangible form how culture is dependent on the efforts of scholars and book lovers long dead. It's a salutary reminder that learning proceeds by the utilization of others' efforts converted to new purposes, that scholarship is cumulative. The library, born after all these books were printed, 
uh, belongs to this long tradition. Uh, as an academic institution, appreciating great minds, aiming to add to knowledge, and priming the next generation to endeavour. With these old books, I would contend, this community, uh, not expecting to have them, can be reminded of the importance of the individual, particularly valuable reassurance for the student on the threshold of a lifetime's work. Wandering round the shelves of the library, it's easy to feel overwhelmed and lose confidence in your eventual ability to command and participate in scholarship. Sight of early printed books with the jottings or signatures of these long dead scholars and bibliophiles can perhaps bring the uniqueness of this endeavour uh, and the possibility of it for any individual much closer. It makes these books much more human. Every single item making up these impersonal mountains of print resolve themselves in this way into individual items each of which began when someone had an idea such as occurs to any of us in the clash of personal knowledge and received culture uh, and of the individual imagination and of old knowledge. Every single volume required the hard slog of writing that same hard slog which is the torture of students uh, faced with having to uh, complete an assignment. But it is possible to overcome it. They didn't all kiss the Blarney Stone. The hand-produced book brings it perhaps a little bit more approachable, a little bit closer. It makes the individual student perhaps able to feel a citizen of that commonwealth of learning. This world we now live in with these books now, it seems to me, are, it is a world where we're going to see the computer penetrating more and more aspects of our life. The computer is going to change a lot of things. It's going to change literacy. Uh, one perhaps doesn't need to be literate anymore. Um, one only needs to be able to push keys. Or just talk for the next generation. The computer is like the food processor. It means that we've got to rethink everything. We've got to rethink how to do things. We've got to, to achieve the same objectives. We've probably got to go a totally different route to it. And in the light of the potential of the computer, we may well decide that the uh, objective we set out with was one which we now uh, no longer wish to arrive at. As all good cooks know, the most popular dishes are the old favourites. The one thing that strikes one in recipe books is how very much overlap there is between them. We must assuredly 
return to our fundamentals. If, as librarians or bibliophiles, we are going to break this barrier, if we're going to establish the importance and the con continuing presence of this kind of material uh, in the academic experience of students in smaller modern universities. For the librarian, it seems to me, we must recognize the importance of enumeration. The STC has had a prodigious impact on studies of Elizabethan culture, and it, it is not difficult to predict that the 18th century short title catalogue will have no less uh, an impact either. The very basis of our culture uh, is, uh, includes enumeration. I came across a rather arresting example of this the other day. One thing ought to be clear, wrote uh, an author, that there is a staggering amount of work still awaiting us. More than half the literature in uh, Swahili has not yet been published and has not even been read except by a few native scholars until all or at least a majority has been made accessible to the public we've no idea of the reality of Swahili culture which it represents most important of all the complete dictionary of Swahili cannot be written before all the literature of any importance is available to lexicographers for the study of Swahili then we need enumeration but we shouldn't think that because English and other modern literatures uh, text-based printed word-based literatures are not in the same position we should not think that it is not equally true the very basis of our culture is this process of collecting together, recording, enumerating, defining the corpus. In collecting, in recording, we organize. Michael Travers organized. He put together a collection of works on the history of ideas and those people at Sussex can follow the development of ideas and no doubt through his catalogue others will be able to make similar itineraries as I hope the suggestive inclusion of works uh, together in one collection uh, will spark off uh, trains of thought Michael Travers the individual represents a person who responded to the experience of books with passion and a readiness to dedicate his time. There are lots of people ready to do this if only they can see how to do it productively. I'm convinced that we need to reaffirm the value of enumeration. We need to put our shoulders to help forward these great projects, the revision of the STC, 
the compilation of the 18th century STC and let's not betray the efforts of those who 40, 50, 60 years ago began putting notes on cards of provenances. They were right. Only when we've got this sort of information together will we be able to crack uh, some of the central questions about the transmission of culture, about the interrelationship of ideas, about the relationship of texts. Michael Travers, the individual responding, was a person who cut out from his experience a lot of the dross which was being thrown at him. We all have to do this, we all have to close our minds to it. He enjoyed reading that exquisitely personal activity. Let's not forget that because it's the very exquisiteness which is going to remind us that the engineers of our libraries, the social scientists with their findings about group behavior, the individual is the person who's being betrayed. We may certainly find if we do a survey of the way in which particular people, particular groups, particular subject areas use books, we may find that uh, whole tracts of available information is not being exploited. That doesn't mean to say that it mightn't be better if it were. Only the librarian is in the position to know where they might be missing out. Let's not get carried away by perpetuating the uh, narrow processes by uh, taking too much notice of the social sciences. The individual reader is the person for whom the library is there. And for the bibliophile. Let's not forget that half the experience of reading is not the message, the intellectual content which librarianship has gone overboard about. But it is also the physical experience, the response that one gets from having the text, that particular printer's work, those particular illustrations with it in front of you. Let's not forget that, because in that we are going to find uh, our greater supporters. bibliophile, the person who includes a physical response, perhaps, in their experience of books. The bibliophile is the person who is most likely to be going to teach. They're our allies, just as much as the people who believe in the history of ideas.
If what I've said is hardly novel, it's not just the blinkered stubbornness of a teacher resisting an inevitable tide. It's one who teaches. It's the stubbornness of one who teaches because they hold some values to be very much at the basis of our culture and at the justification of the existence of libraries. As I said a few moments ago, the curious thing about cookery books is that they very rarely contain anything new. So perhaps you would have been uneasy if I had uh, produced lots of new recipes. Though with the food mixer, with the computer, with a world of people for whom literacy is not to be taken for granted in quite the way that it has been traditionally, with all that, uh, perhaps it's useful to see the context of our collections in a new way. If one reads uh, the splendid words of Bill Jackson uh, in the records of a bibliographer on the importance of old books in libraries, uh, one can get uh, lots of useful arguments. But one doesn't get an intellectual justification which will give it a place, give old books a place in a world uh, where computers uh, are more part of the child's experience uh, than uh, our books. A fact uh, I find uh, complained about uh, in uh, this most recent issue of your splendid magazine, Time. I believe that comparable interest, if not comparable findings, uh, can be extracted from any special collection. To recognize it, we need to be aware of the way information is transmitted and the way the press serves society and culture. This is where the endeavours of the Friends of the Book, and the Friends of the Book Arts and the Friends of Book Arts Press uh, are so valuable in encouraging and practicing appreciation of books. There must be many parallels uh, in your experience supporting librarians in their endeavours to get across the delights of their particular library's materials uh, is, I think, uh, a thing you are particularly well equipped um, with your great tradition here uh, to further. Thank you very much.